Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen. And today I'm here with Jack Parlett to talk about his wonderful book, Fire Island, A Century in the Life of an American Paradise. Jack is an author, a writer, and I can tell you after reading this book, a tremendous writer (laughs) and also a poet. And I'm so excited to have him here with us today. So welcome, Jack. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having me. So if we could get started with just you telling your uh, the listeners, excuse me, a little bit about yourself and sort of how you came to the project of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my background, I guess, is, is in academia. And when I, I was working on my PhD thesis about cruising um, among American poets, so with a kind of focus on um, queer, the queer writers of New York, I mean, of which there are so many, but um, I was I was spending time in New York during the second year of my, my doctorate. And I'd sort of heard about Fire Island from multiple sources, like it sort of felt like quite a ubiquitous uh, sort of destination on like on gay Instagram, you know, uh, but I'd also, I'd also seen lots of references to it, um, like through my research, and I was particularly obsessed um, with Frank O'Hara, the poet at the time, um, who I think is is my favourite poet and ha- has been for for a while. And I knew that he had he died after an after an automobile kind of dune buggy accident on Fire Island in the nineteen sixties. So when I was in the city, it, it struck me that you know that's a pilgrimage I should take at some point. Um, and I went to Fire Island myself yeah that was the summer of 2017 and I became I guess captivated by it obsessed with it from that point onwards really um partly based on what I'd seen there and my feeling about being there my experience of being there uh and I suppose what it revealed to me a bit about myself um as as a queer person but also as as a researcher just realizing that there was just this incredible archive of material about this place that's kind of mythologizing this place critiquing this place and and that's how i came to this project really focusing at first i suppose on the writers who've been to fire island Thank you. Yeah, of course, I've, I've heard of Fire Island, but I didn't realize that it had such a rich literary history. Um, so it was just really wonderful to, to learn about. So your book primarily considers two areas of Fire Island, Cherry Grove and the Pines. What do listeners need to know about these places sort of generally to understand the premise of your book? And I'm also curious if you could talk a bit about your experience, you know, going there yourself um, and then just sort of like historically, like sort of who was where and, and who was absent from these two places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I should start really with offering a sense of what you need to know about Fire Island generally um, and what it's kind of like topographically and what it feels like to be there. It's I mean, it looks on a map like a sandbar. It's like 32 miles long. It's it's long and thin um, just off the south shore of Long Island. It takes a few hours to get there from New York City. Um but one of the really distinctive things about it is there are no cars allowed on the island. So it really feels, uh, you feel very remote. You're right on the fringes of the Atlantic. There are no cars. It's very much like kind of designed around feeling that you're getting away from kind of everyday life. Um, 
cherry grove and the pines sort of sit not quite but like roughly in the middle of the island along its horizontal stretch and they uh have been really since the since the early 20th century beginning with cherry grove in the 1930s have been known back in the city and beyond as a, as sort of hubs for um lgbtq plus folk and um and also more broadly kind of creative cultural hubs as well and so the development of these places i think is is like a matter of like historical importance in a lot of ways i mean esther newton who's written like a really important book about cherry grove describes it as america's first gay and lesbian town um and so i think a sense of 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 what what makes them distinctive and what makes them historically important is is yeah, is necessary in sort of painting this picture. Um, so I guess some of that was there when I went there for the first time myself. I really didn't know much about Fire Island, and I certainly didn't know about the sort of practical <laughs> aspects of going to Fire Island and the fact that you get the ferry, but you, I mean, you can walk between the communities. There are 17 different communities across the island. Um, but I mean, it takes a while to walk between them, and it certainly takes a while to walk between them on the beach at night, which was what what I chose to do the first time I was trying to move from one community to Cherry Grove and then to the Pines. Um, and yeah, I I suppose I felt I was like captivated and somewhat confused by what I found there. I think that Fire Island, I mean, even its name feels sort of mythical. Like I'd absolutely imagined this utopian space. Um, now, I mean, utopia is its own conversation, right? They don't really exist, or at least the c- concrete utopias never quite match our expectations. But that's not what I found there. I found, you know, I found it, um, you know, really kind of warm and welcoming and exciting in some ways, and sort of hard to crack and hard to hard to get my head around in others. Um, and yeah, I suppose that sort of ambivalence was like a an animating force for the book as well. Um, but historically, in terms of thinking about who has been there, um, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, since the 1930s, when Cherry Grove was uh, began to gain reputation as this sort of alternative destination for people from the city, um, it's mostly been dominated by white gay men and lesbians. Um, relatively middle class affluent i mean that has changed over the years and certainly kind of even through the 1950s into the 1960s the communities were becoming more diverse um and they're certainly becoming more and more diverse by the day today um but i think historically that's been the kind of primary demographic and so again what kind of utopia is it if it's if 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 it's um you know predominantly been dominated by one social group um but i think that's changing Great, thank you. So you you start us off sort of in with this year 1882, which is um, this very important year for the development of Cherry Grove, um, particularly as a queer destination, as you call it. So I'm wondering if you can kind of recap for the listener, why is 1882 so important? Yeah, it's funny. 1882 feels important in a way that is hard to verify, I suppose, right? So like 1882 was the year that Oscar Wilde was on a lecture tour in America. Um, and he, you know, spent a lot of time in New York um, and in Jersey. He went to see Walt Whitman. That was like very well documented in the newspapers at the time. Uh, but there, there are also there'd been talk of Wilde having made it to Fire Island and to 
uh, what was then a very rustic kind of early iteration of Cherry Grove. And so I think from a from a legend perspective, I mean, it doesn't get more kind of neat and perfect than that, right? Like the idea of Wilde sort of flamboyantly stepping off the boat onto the shores and kind of christening this place is actually very hard to prove. I mean, there are local historians who are looking into this more and more. Um, and really, like, the, the one source that has fed this myth, I suppose, comes from a local history that was published in, the, I think, the 1970s. And so there's no kind of primary evidence that this did happen. But I think in the book I tried to, um, I don't know, sort of th- think around that a little bit and think, well, why... What, why is it so appealing to imagine that Wilde was there? Uh, it certainly makes for a great kind of starting point, a great origin story. don't quite know if it was true, but I think it's an important year, at least for feeding our ideas of what Fire Island is and would become. I, I really loved, A, I love the idea of Oscar Wilde on a beach. For some reason, that just, <laughs> I can't see him like on the right. sand. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, the, the sort of interaction between Wilde and Whitman that you talk about, I actually went on my university's newspaper archives and looked up a bunch of coverage of that. Cause I thought, wow, that's like the coolest thing that I've never heard of before. Um, yeah, so I just loved it. Um, so when and why did queer people begin visiting Cherry Grove over more popular and more developed areas, um, like Ocean Beach? Who were these people? Why were they drawn to this area? This um, this is in the late 1930s, I think, that this starts to happen, really. And uh, another thing that Esther Newton writes about in, in her book about Cherry Grove is, is precisely the sense that there were other communities that in some ways were slightly more developed on Fire Island at this time, and Ocean Beach was one of them. And Ocean Beach itself had, uh, you know, many famous visitors from showbiz, like Fanny Bryce was there and, and like numerous other kind of luminaries of of the stage and, and the kind of cultural scene in the city. Um, but because Ocean Beach was a sort of de facto capital, and I suppose still is in some ways today, and was the most developed, it also meant that to be to be there and to be other right to to be there and to be different from the families the long island families and sort of middle class families from the city who are vacationing there you're much more visible um and and cherry grove was something that was that that was i suppose relatively remote in some ways like there still weren't that many houses um the boardwalks weren't fully constructed and so it was sort of more rustic but also i guess gave a greater sense of possibility to people who might have been going away to get away from feeling visible in the city um and again again esther newton sort of writes about the fact that the sort of useful shorthand slash euphemism for these people was the theatre people. Um, and again, like it's sort of very obvious what that's referring to. But but it's the set from the city who are yeah, working on Broadway, uh, occupying the kind of New Yorker set in the, in the 1930s, the Bohemians and the, the sort of gender non-conforming. Um, and so that's those are the people that are that are entering Cherry Grove in that space. And I think they're finding something different there from Ocean Beach. They're finding a sort of more private space. I think that leads us really nicely into the next question that I have for you, which is on page 54, you write that, quote, um, ideological conflict between queer and family values played out not only at the level of political organizing, but at shared vacation spaces, end quote. Can you um, explain this a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think that who who these spaces are for, like these shared vacation spaces in a community like Cherry Grove, has been a sort of highly contentious question from the very beginning of its development as as an enclave. And I think that in Cherry Grove's sort of early years, there was a sense that there was a kind of roughly harmonious truce between the families and the theatre people. Um, But that 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 has changed over time and there there have been continually been tensions within communities about who's sharing these spaces i think that something that you see in later years um and something that itself becomes contentious is actually political organizing on the part of uh queer people and members for the queer community on fire island that's kind of seen as something that naturally will alienate the straight or family you know family friendly factions of the community and so in in that moment in the book writing about that ideological conflict that's coming at a later moment in the sort of early 1980s when conservative commentators are sort of suggesting that the you know to put it bluntly the gays of the 50s actually weren't really there to express a politics they were there to kind of have a vacation to have a safe space and now all the all the militants of the 70s are sort of uh ruining the fun essentially and making that coexistence harder so i think space has always been politicized in these queer communities on fire island and political activity has become one of the things that's 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 divided the community too um and so that's that's really at the heart of that ideological conflict Thank you. Um, You write about some of the other sort of gay enclaves that were developing in the 1920s and 30s in the US. And so I would love it if you could speak to sort of what these uh, these spaces were and how their history should inform the way that we understand what was happening at Cherry Grove. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I feel like from, from the research that I was doing for the book that the majority of these enclaves were urban enclaves. Um, and again, like a kind of such an influential text in this area was was reading George Chauncey's Gay New York um, and, and some of the histories that have been inspired by that work uh, and, and thinking about what what those enclaves were like socially, culturally, sexually, sort of demographically. Um, and I think those histories do inform the development of a place like Cherry Grove and you know, those places were thriving kind of simultaneously. I mean, really kind of a bit before Cherry Grove. I mean, I guess the period that Chauncey's writing about is is precisely the period pre-war, pre-Second World War, when there, there is this sense of a kind of blooming of gay and queer culture in the city. But I think where Fire Island is different, and this is partly a geographical question, but it's a kind of geographical question that conditions its social environment, is that Whereas in the city, these urban enclaves might, that there'll be a great deal of traffic of people, very different walks of life, different social backgrounds, um, different communities passing through. Fire Island is a, is a kind of, is siloed. It's that it exists outside of the city. So uh, th- there's none of that sense of kind of contingency or of people maybe chancing upon it in the same way. Um, so naturally the enclaves that, that, developed on fire island were less were more homogenous were less diverse were dependent more on kind of um pre-existing connections rather than the kind of um sort of i guess enforced social mixing that happens in a city like new york and that was happening in harlem and greenwich village in the 20s and 30s for example which were much more diverse forms of queer culture i think 
Um, so I want to move us along to your third chapter, um, which opens with this description of a photograph that leads into this like beautiful rendering of this um, person's life, um, the subject of the photograph. Um, I was in tears by the end of the chapter. <laughs> I, I also bought a bunch of this person's books. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just yeah talk about who who is uh, chapter chapter three sort of talking about what what is this photograph? Um, yeah. Yeah. So chapter three is about a writer called Donald Wyndham. Um, and I guess, yeah, sometimes I never know like how much familiar- familiarity to assume about Wyndham's work. I think he's such an underrated writer. Um, and he's certainly known today through the the, win- the the like now very prestigious Wyndham Campbell prizes that are given by, you know, through Yale University to, to writers and artists. But Donald Wyndham was a writer who... Um, he was a writer of fiction and non-fiction and I guess actually a lot of his work was about was about what it means to be part of an artistic community and to be surrounded by people whose careers take very different trajectories I mean a lot of his writing is about his friendships with Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams um but a lot of his writing too was about the love affair of his life with Sandy Campbell, um, who he first met in the 1940s when he'd moved to New York. And their love really blossomed on Fire Island and in the community of Saltaire, um, which was not known as a particularly queer-friendly community. But um, Donald Wyndham had connections to the sort of artistic set who were spending time in Saltaire in, in the 1930s and 40s, um, comprised of Paul Cadmus and Jared French and Margaret Honing, um, Jared's wife. And so the three artists took these really kind of playful, um, sort of sexy, I mean, like really quite boundary pushing, pushing images of each other on the beach. And when they were sort of asked to present them to the world like years later they just called them pajama um because it was kind of easier than trying to attribute authorship to individual images and so they used the sort of first letters of each of their names and so the photo that i begin that chapter with is of donald windham in the early 40s dragging what looks to be like a kind of net along the beach um and it's a really striking image I th- I think there's so much going on within it that there's absolutely something about about youth and about Fire Island as this space of incredible freedom uh, and liberation, which I feel in some ways is registered there in his in his face in that in that image, um, but but dragging this dark net through the through the surf also feels sort of weirdly morbid in other ways I feel like there's there are many layers to that image and it felt to me that it really spoke to something that really spoke to Donald Wyndham's experience of Fire Island um as a kind of a self-appointed archivist by the time that Wyndham passed away in 2010 he'd been going to Fire Island sort of on and off since the 1940s so for nearly 70 years he was in Saltaire in the 40s he moved to the Pines in the 70s and it was where he lived with Sandy Campbell his husband until uh, his, his life partner until he passed away suddenly in the 80s um, he saw so much he saw so much change um, and he felt like a really important figure 
for me in the book and actually a kind of unique figure for someone who saw the island in so many different iterations and and saw it um you know saw it before before stonewall and after and, and during the hiv aids epidemic in the 1980s and 90s and so he's he's a kind of crucial figure and also just an amazing writer i'd really recommend reading his fiction um it's it's strange and compelling and i think yeah very underrated um so let's move on to chapter four, which, you know, for me as someone who studies fatness in American literature and like anti-fatness more generally um, in American culture, I was really struck by the title, which is Body Fascism. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see anti-fatness in particular in gay male communities and culture and sort of how does this discussion of anti-fatness like lead us into the heart of the chapter? Yeah. Um there's a certain stereotype around Fire Island, and I guess I suppose I want to be careful about the way in which I'm using that stereotype. But it's nonetheless one that exists, and and I, you know, like all, you know, it's it, it's rooted in something accurate, I think, um, which is that Fire Island, in some ways, represents the sort of the centre of of a of a like a dominant gay male culture in which the thin body the athletic body is absolutely worshipped um and to to be outside of that or to 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 be embodied differently um essentially renders you an outsider to this space and fire island as i said like the sort of the stereotype goes is this um is this hub of the kind of the chiseled the chiseled white gay that's that's the cliche and I suppose that was something that I I felt or that I certainly was on my mind a lot the first time that I visited Fire Island. And um, it struck me that this is truer, for example, in the Pines or certainly this this history of, a, of association between a certain body type and, and a community than it is in, in Cherry Grove. Um, but m- more broadly, anti-fatness is a continues to be a huge problem in gay male culture and i mean that sort of very well-known epithet of no fats no femmes i mean it's it's there everywhere it's there on dating apps um it's it's been there kind of in cruising cultures i think um throughout throughout the kind of history of of intimate connections that gay men have made with one another over the years i think that there are of course subcultures and spaces within the gay community that are that have been, if not designed to kind of evade those attitudes, then offer offer a way through them and kind of like the bear the bear subculture is one example. Although I don't think that fat phobia just sort of disappears from those spaces either. And certainly, there's in sort of interesting affirmations of um, a certain kind of masculinity within that culture too. But I do think that Fire Island. Um, Fire Island represents for many and and accurately the opposite of a kind of subculture that's celebrating sort of difference. Um, And so this chapter in the book really was about thinking about that. And that really comes from, I think, the sort of the vision of Fire Island that we get in the 1970s and the gay liberation years when the sort of Adonis figure becomes its most romanticised. And this chapter kind of uses that moment to try and actually think back to earlier iterations in the island's history um, and and to think about W.H. Auden's time in Cherry Grove and his discomfort, I guess, with 
the, the sense that this was a community devoted to pleasure and bodily pleasure um, and that he felt very aware of his own figure and his own weight um, and that that revealed something you know to me as well about my own sense of my body and the and my my feeling that sort of acutely when when in a space like fire island um so so body fascism is yeah is is, i guess using a concept that has become i think kind of part of the lexicon and is again based on that kind of 70s moment and thinking about what it would mean to use that to sort of illuminate an earlier moment in the 1940s through through Auden. um when of course there's the the very real threat of other kinds of political fascism too. So I mean, there's something at stake in using that language, but it felt to me like these concerns kind of all intersected um, across history in a sort of interesting way. Yeah, it's such an interesting chapter. And um, actually, you cite uh, Dr. Richard Bozorth, who's an Auden scholar, who's also in my dissertation um, committee. <laughs> so that was really cool to see. Hi, Rick. If you ever listen to this. Uh, very cool to see. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the role that alcohol plays in these stories of Cherry Grove and uh, and the Pines? Absolutely. Um, I think like, like any communities that foreground pleasure, foreground hedonism, alcohol has been like very present in both communities since their their first sort of flourishings in the like early to mid 20th century um and and it would be remiss in this moment not also to mention the role played by drugs particularly in the 1970s onwards um but i think what's what's kind of interesting like tracing alcohol more particularly through this history is the sense that like the social life of cherry grove in the 40s and 50s kind of grew out of its early history of like waspy kind of afternoon drinks parties in which like cocktails were really sort of central um the sense of this kind of swinging alcoholic um party culture in cherry grove is really present in a lot of early accounts of the community um and naturally therefore the bars in cherry grove of which there have have been a few and the bars played a really important role in those early decades of its development and similarly in the pines as well um i'm sure we'll talk a bit about this later but the kind of tea dance is really important to the culture of of the pines and in both of them alcohol is very focal um and so i think yeah like a drinking culture has always been central to fire island and kind of more broadly i mean i'm sort of wary of making too large a generalization here but kind of the history of queer culture in some ways right that actually bars have fulfilled such an important role in providing sort of refuge and um spaces for for community and sexual connection and um social connection that that i think in fire island that's kind of concentrated that um alcohol has played a central role in both of these communities so a lot of the book is about gay male culture on Fire Island, but lesbians also were there. Um, you have uh, some really great writing about some of the lesbian women who were on the island and really left their mark on the island. Um, can we talk about about lesbians? Yeah, talk about the ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, those figures have been so central to the culture of Fire Island and the history of Fire Island. Um and it's worth saying at this point, I guess, a kind of distinction for like any listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with this, the distinction between the Pines as a 
as a community that's sort of generally been mostly coded as gay male versus Cherry Grove, which has historically always been more mixed and kind of more lesbian. Um, and, and the demographics of that have shifted and, and ebbed and flowed o- over time. But Cherry Grove was absolutely a destination that um, lesbian writers like Patricia Highsmith spent time in and um, the the other person I write about in, in that chapter is about Carson McCullers, who I, I, I suppose I still feel... I wonder about the accuracy of using the term lesbian about McCullers, but to, to call her a queer writer at least feels um, like kind of kind of accurate. Um, and they, again, I think were moving through Cherry Grove in the 1950s and the 1960s and were, were witnessing a time of great change, I think, when Cherry Grove itself was becoming much more sort of infamous back in the city like it was starting to show up in comedians bits about um you know about i guess sort of gags about what how you might be outed by your choice of vacation destination so cherry grove was kind of becoming notorious and i think a lot of the a lot of the lesbian writers who were who were there in that time were therefore occupying a space that was really thriving socially and culturally, but it was also tense. Um, and I think one of the things I found fascinating about reading about Highsmith and McCullough's time on Fire Island is how turbulent so much of it actually seemed to be. I mean, one of one of Highsmith's visits there ended up with her getting involved in like a, a, a brawl in one of the bars, um, which itself, I mean, upon reading that, feels like that. There's so much mythologizing around around Highsmith, and uh, she's such a complicated figure, I think, and and try, sort of trying to square her her legacy and her work with um, aspects her, her political views, for example. But um, yeah, I became really fascinated by by both of these figures, and I think more more generally, like lesbians have been central to Cherry Grove culture really throughout its history, and through the 1980s like much of my research i guess was unearthing the sense that so many lesbians were 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 would would, were caring for their gay male friends who were who were dying of aids and um and yeah that they've they've been they've been absolutely central to to its culture and the kind of continuation of its culture and to the kind of community organizing in, in both communities can we talk about James Baldwin's time on the island? What was his experience like? It's funny. It's quite hard to piece together. Um, like there are several visits that are documented in in biographies and in letters. I think a really telling um, a telling instance is a letter that he writes to Lorraine Hansbury actually in the nineteen sixties about sort of spending a weekend on fire island and choosing not to spend time with the people who've come for the weekend to kind of party i think at least in the sense in 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 the in the way that i could kind of draw from these examples and these these um these letters like baldwin went to fire island to write like it was a place of respite it was a place of kind of creative creative freedom it was somewhere that he would go to get away from the city to finish working on the novel or the play that he was he was working on um i don't really think that he saw himself as being part of the kind of dominant pleasure seeking gay male community there um 
he's certainly quite suspicious of it in his mentions of Fire Island, and I think it elsewhere in his writing is is sort of slightly suspicious of um, gay male culture or, or 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 you know predominantly white gay male culture, which I think Fire Island was in many ways a kind of signifier of. Um, but it was it was fascinating to find out about his time there, and I'd always imagined, I guess, having loved Baldwin's work in a separate context, it was imagined that surely he'd been to Fire Island, and discovering that he and Frank O'Hara had bumped, sort of bumped into each other on Fire Island was just just totally blew my mind. When the day I the day I found that and that a description of that encounter was was a very good day. Um, it felt like so many different threads and and loves of mine kind of coming together. I guess. Yes, to be a fly on the wall <laughs> when right, that when that right? yeah. yeah. Um, so let's let's stick with Frank here. Um, so you call his death on Fire Island a moment of quote mythical weight end quote. Can you can you sort of walk us through that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a, a trope throughout the book, I guess, that Fire Island has a kind of mythological quality and partly that's to do with a sense of its, uh, of its danger um, and also like this curious thread of morbidity that kind of runs through its history. And I think that Frank O'Hara's death actually is responsible for that trope in some ways. Like, I think that it was this completely freak accident that happened in in 1966 uh, that I guess has been much poured over by biographers um, and then and simultaneously writers who feel that we should kind of be paying less attention to it. I guess for me, it held a kind of mythical weight because it just seemed, I guess, so kind of narratively like so strangely like there was this there's this weird clustering between the sense that ahara was like writing about about kind of queer life and about perhaps some of his kind of ambivalent feelings about what that would look like i think that in so many ways he was a completely utopian poet um and then in and then there are other shades of him that are kind of much more he's much more of a realist or a cynic right this is always this interesting counterbalance in his writing but i think Fire Island seemed to represent so many things, both to us today and in the '60s, and so I guess his death is is, is this really important moment in its in its queer history, um, and it's part of its mythos as a place that um, you might go to for pleasure or safety, but might also kind of swallow you up or, or put you in danger. And so it's certainly not this kind of like, I don't mean to imply that the island itself is some like malevolent force that killed Frank O'Hara. Like, as I said, this accident was sort of um, completely contingent in so many ways. But I do think that that's part of its mythical weight has been almost the sense that like Fire Island is this strange outpost on the fringes of the Atlantic that's a kind of precarious space it's a space where like accidents like that can can happen it's associated with 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 death um and so certainly for me yeah that was that has been a part of its of its mythology and was certainly my way into that mythology and to its literary history more broadly thank you so let's let's zoom out a little bit more and and talk about the difference is in the way that uh, like Cherry Grove, that community, and then the Pines sort of were thinking about using sort of performing gender differently, especially following the events of the gay liberation movement in the 1960s. Hmm. 
Well, Cherry Grove, like really from the 1940s onwards, like one of its, one of the things it's really been associated with is is drag and performance and a, a theatrical culture that's really thrived there, as I said, since the 1940s. And so I think by by the 1960s, 70s, Cherry Grove has already found its mojo, like it already knows what it is as a community. And like a lot of what that is, is about, is about, um, about drag, about playing with gender, about kind of outrageousness. And the Pines has this totally different history in that it was unoccupied for a long time. I mean, it was previously occupied in the sort of early 20th century by a nudist colony. And then it was developed by property developers in the early 1950s and envisaged as a as a family community you know like family the word family in scare quotes like again we know what that means and it means um you know no gays allowed and i guess what's interesting is that although those were some of the aims that the pines was kind of made in the image of if that's not the community that it became but it did going into the 60s have an association uh, like it was, it was, it was seen as the more discreet or respectable of the two communities. And actually, there were gays and lesbians who moved from Cherry Grove to the Pines because it was less conspicuous. Like, if you were to say to someone in your workplace on a Monday morning that you spent your weekend in the Pines, people wouldn't go to the sort of aspects of deviancy that they might associate with Cherry Grove. Um, and so, I think that this is an important aspect of how they use and perform gender differently in this period because where cherry grove was as i say much more um open and playful the pines from the 1960s and through the 1970s was i guess associated with something more conventional um and certainly in the 1970s like it's there's there are these well-worn cliches about the butch clone look and again the kind of adonis figure but i do think that the gay male community in the pines there was a celebration of a certain kind of masculinity um, that was really at odds with the kinds of things that was going on in Cherry Grove and the kind of the sardonic queens kind of in in their like brightly coloured outfits. Um, So yeah, I think that they they did these things really differently and this came to a head in the 1970s when a drag queen from Cherry Grove went to the pines to have dinner and was actually turned away by the proprietor of the restaurant in the pines because she was in drag um and so some of this some of the drag queens in cherry grove hatched a plan to invade the pines harbor and it's become this like very kind of good humored um and sort of iconic fixture in the social calendar every 4th of July like flotilla of ferries like of drag full of drag queens come and invade the pines and it's I guess a kind of jokey but nonetheless a sincere nod to the different ways that those communities perform gender in that period and kind of still do today in some ways. I think that leads us into talking about this photo Robert Maplethorpe's photo American flag yeah. Um, and his sort of, yeah, time on the island, his feelings about it. Um, so, yeah, let's let's move in that direction. Yeah. I think, like, he spent time in several different communities. Like, he spent time in the Pines um, with Patti Smith and, and, and these other sort of artistic luminaries. But he also spent a lot of time in Oakleyville, which was this, like, really small community of just a few houses that was kind of more associated with the art world um 
that was slightly more sort of rustic. I mean, it had no, was nothing like the Pines in many ways. It's more like a kind of, uh, it's on the bay side of Fire Island. It's much closer. It's it's way, it's it's beyond Cherry Grove, um, like to the west. And I think that there are these interesting, there are, the, there are these interesting moments in some of his writing where he's talking about or, or, or interviews that he's given where he's sort of talking about the pull of a place like the pines, like where Oakleyville might have been a place that he could work and where he would spend time with, with other artists, this sort of sexual culture and the party culture of the pines was something that, that really he was drawn towards. Um, but I think simultaneously challenged by, like, I think he had, at least he said he as he puts it in one interview like he kind of thinks a lot about being there and then when he's there he kind of thinks about not being there and i think that that ambivalence is like really there in testimonies throughout this history is the feeling that like the particular hedonistic culture of fire island and of the pines presents a kind of dream in some ways of this like amazing sexually free um sort of vertiginous like disco space but the, also that that is also kind of overwhelming and exclusionary and kind of a lot. And, you know, I don't want to sort of imbue this image with this kind of one, one type of intentionality, but I do think that American flag, that photo kind of gets at some of those conflicting feelings in some ways. Um, because I think that in the 60s and 70s like it's a moment when the cherry grove and the pines are coming into their own as communities and affirming their identities and what they are about and there is a sort of interesting strain of patriotism in the history of cherry grove this is something that esther newton again fascinatingly writes about in her book that the invasion of the pines is every fourth of july like you see a lot of flags in cherry grove like there are there are lgbtq plus flags um but there are also American flags. So I guess, like, interestingly, Fire Island is, yeah, weirdly fixated upon Americanness as an identity and as, as and a kind of um, the, Amer- the all-American vacation. And I think Maplethorpe is pointing to that in that image, really, and, and the ways in which the flag it is frayed and is blowing in the wind. Um, there's a kind of fault line there. There's, like, mm-hmm. something... There's, there's a there's a there's a mythos being disrupted even if in a kind of subtle way yeah it's fascinating um so let's talk about dancing dancing is obviously very important to these communities um can we talk about like the tea dance what is the tea dance and yeah. then maybe if we can move into disco so the tea dance again i feel like i could i could really wade into like a historical debate about where the tea dance started um the tea dance like there are absolutely arguments that the tea dance was sort of first formed in the pines, like actually long, uh, sorry, sorry, in Cherry Grove, like long before it became a regular fixture in the pines, um, there had been iterations of this kind of, of this thing in, in the hotel and the bar in Cherry Grove, like way back in the forties and fifties. But the tea dance in essence is a kind of afternoon drinks party, um, which everyone from the community kind of congregates on the dock. And like the tea dance is a, it's a social occasion, but it's also, uh, yeah, I think historically has been about status and about visibility and about cruising. Like you, you go to tea dance to meet people, you go to tea dance to dance. Um, 
certainly in the like 70s iteration of the tea dance and in the pines like that would be where some of the hottest djs are, are playing right and so you're listening to disco music you're dancing you're meeting other people you're cruising other people um and you're maybe you know spotting who's who's here this weekend who haven't i met yet who might i meet in the meat rack later on which is like this wooded cruising area between the two communities so the tea dance has been really central to fire island i mean it's like if you were to spend a weekend in the pines it'd probably be the first thing you hear about like are you going to tea and there's high tea and there's low tea and there's like different kinds of tea on different days and it happens every day in the high season so it's like really central to its culture um i think dancing has been really significant on fire island i guess in ways that are comparable to the conversation we were having about alcohol earlier that like dancing a space created for dancing has been synonymous with a space of liberation or kind of protection from the sort of hostilities of the dominant culture. And I think really like dancing only becomes more and more important to Fire Island in the 1970s in the heyday of disco. And some of the most important disco DJs from the city are playing on Fire Island in the bars in Cherry Grove and the Pines. And dancing becomes, I guess, an expression of liberation um and i mean that's something that still feels true today in a lot of ways and still i don't know feels true like in a personal way like the sort of the ways in which dancing can be a freeing act and i think it's been like really important to queer culture and certainly in fire island it's like a really um obvious example of that and there's something interesting that happens in the 1980s like through um the early 1980s onwards with with the hiv aids epidemic that the dances which are so crucial to the social life on fire island also become forms of like political awareness raising and so um there are gay men's health organizations organizing dance parties as a form of fundraising for 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 aids organizations and charities so dancing becomes politicized in a different way under the sort of stresses of that era can you tell us a little bit about larry creamer yeah i mean there's so much to say (laughs) um larry kramer is a writer and an activist and he's best known i suppose for his work through act up and founding act up and and the history of act up and and of aids activism more generally um i guess that i of course knew all of that about kramer when i set out to write this book but part Partly what I felt like I had to do in the process was like reacquaint myself with him as a writer. Um, And he's certainly very well known for his play, The Normal Heart, which kind of dramatizes the dramatizes the sort of early years of of gay men's health crisis and subsequently act up. And and again, yeah, the sort of early years of AIDS activism in the city. But um, yeah, I guess before he was an activist or before he was even particularly political by his own admission, the way that he writes about and talks about himself in the 1970s. He was a writer, he was a screenwriter, and he lived in London for many years. Um, and he also wrote a novel called Faggots, um, which was published in 1978, which is this kind of flagship year in gay um, gay literary history, because it was also the year that Andrew Holleran's novel Dancer from the Dance was published. And Faggots is this really interesting book, like very controversial, very divisive, particularly at the time and even today. Um, it's this kind of really no-holds-bar 
no holds barred did i say that right uh satire of the gay male culture that kramer had been living in and sort of felt excluded from or sort of felt yeah felt uncertain about i think it's a novel that's like full of of angst i think about what it had meant for a community to be liberated in the way that it was at the sort of late 1960s early 70s um and then the way that he saw it to be devoting so much time and energy merely to pleasure and not to sort of like other kinds of forms of community and care and love like it doesn't take very much to see the sort of whiff of moralism in that attitude i think and that's what's made him a really contentious figure as well as a, a obviously a really really important one um but yeah i mean faggots was published in 78 and he was persona non grata on fire island and you know he 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 wouldn't be able to kind of walk down the boardwalk without people sort of shouting at him i think people would like deeply offended by that critique and also suspicious of of its politics um and and he also fire own community at that time was so small so this was a kind of very thinly veiled fictionalization of that historical moment in the 70s and i think another reason that people were that it was a very divisive decision was that the characters in it were recognizable as real people so um yeah he yeah he that 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 moment i guess in the 70s was something that i was really interested in as something that precedes his activism which he's i'd say best known for sorry let me turn off that notification so can you sort of tell us then about like uh what how does this history of like act up um or rather like how did people in cherry grove and the pines like how did they sort of react to act up was there like another way that they were sort of wanting to politicize or like respond to the hiv aids epidemic like what was the sort of relationship there to to stick with Larry Kramer for the moment because I think he's he's an important sort of voice in this question about like what was the relationship between a uh, movement like ACT UP and the Fire Island communities. Like one of the things that he writes about is like in the very early nineteen eighties, going to Fire Island with the sort of then nascent gay men's health crisis that he'd set up, and um, you know with with other activists kind of shaking a bucket for donations and receiving very short shrift and this very frosty um reception i think it's hard to it there's no single answer to this question but i think that there was a kind of there was a vexed relationship between the aids activist movement and the fire island communities i think that this is not to say that people who were really vocal and active in the movement didn't also spend time on fire island and kind of go there as a place of respite or spend their time there or visit friends there um or you know that the people who are sort of fire island regulars did nothing but i think there is a sense that these are two communities that are kind of at odds and i mean i think another really important perspective here is that of vito rosso the um film historian and writer who when he was very sick with AIDS-related complications in the 1980s, um, sort of actually wrote to the editor of like one of the local Fire Island newspapers, railing against this sense of inaction in the Fire Island communities, this sense that ultimately, because people were going to these places as, as like for their vacation, that it was almost a, 
a way of getting away from the like very urgent political reality of the epidemic. Um, so I think different people had very different experiences. And again, it would be it would be too black and white to suggest that no activists were in Fire Island and that also the people within the communities didn't also have activist sort of sympathies and didn't do do their bit as well. I think it's um yeah, it's a, it's a kind of it's it's an it's an interesting moment. I think lots of people felt they had different things. I mean, different priorities. One of the things that I think I learned from my research was feeling that perhaps what Cherry Grove and the Pines were valuable for in some ways were actually a spaces of of memory and of kind of memorialization and so many men who died like so young and so many people who died so young in the 80s had their ashes scattered on Fire Island. Um, The invasion of the Pines was also a space where people who who were really sick and kind of didn't, because they were really ill, like didn't sort of fit the the kind of dominant mould of what, like, an attractive gay man looked like, were very much, partic- part- very much you know, participated in the invasion of the Pines. So I think some of the island's own rituals made space for the collective grief of that moment and, and the, the distress of that moment, and it provided a space for people to live out their last days and to say goodbye to their friends. And so I feel in some ways... Like it wasn't a space of great political agitation that was ha- of the kind that was happening back in the city, but I almost think that it it provided people with something else actually in those years. I think that sort of speaks to what I wanted to something that you wrote that I wanted to ask you about. Um, so you talk about like activism requiring like a hope and a demand, right? And it seems like the sort of political demands coupled with, I mean, I think like a sort of collective gr- grieving process is like a a process of hope, right? Like a hope for healing, a hope for a community. Um, but I'm wondering, cause it seems like you did quite a bit of research for this in 2019. And so I'm just curious, like, I'm not trying to c- compare like the two viruses, but I'm just curious if like, like, what was that experience, you know, going through and researching and writing this book and then um, experiencing, you know, this ongoing pandemic? Well, I wrote most of the book during the pandemic. Um, so for me, it felt, although I don't know how visible that probably is necessarily in the writing, for me, I it it kind of impressed upon everything that I wrote in the book in some ways. Um, and I had done, like, yeah, as you were saying, like much of the sort of primary research for it and the archival research in the years before and in the summer of 2019. Um, and then I began working on the entire manuscript in March 2020 and so it was you know that was exactly my experience and um on a separate note I think it created a sort of interesting mental space to be occupying where I guess I was writing about this place that's a space of fantasy for a lot of people while also kind of fantasizing about being there like I guess that sort of informed some of my thinking about it as a kind of utopian horizon was this sense that Fire Island like presented a space that people dream of that we dream of as we get out of a sort of space of adversity or of times of crisis so that that informed a sort of thread in the book i think but there was another consideration which was that actually fire island was like interestingly visible in the early months of the pandemic and i mean maybe particularly to me because i was researching it all the time and i was so curious about what was going on because of course 
in a time of a of a pandemic, like an island becomes a contested space, like who is allowed on and who is not. And there were all there were you know reports in lots of newspapers in the New York Times about regular residents and kind of year round residents of the island telling people to turn back and go back to the city and don't bring the virus onto the island. Um, so kind of what the fire, how the fire island community responded to the pandemic was something that I was really interested in. Um, I also felt that there were, uh, there were other shades. Um, I actually had written a sort of alternate final chapter to the book um, that I, in consultation with my editors, decided not quite to frame it in this way. But that chapter actually focused much more on the summer of 2020. And I guess some of the comparisons between... Um, I don't... I, you know, as you were just saying, I don't want to compare these viruses as if they're kind of directly comparable, really. But I feel that there was... There were there were forms of like slight moral panic around Fire Island as a space that for, it's impossible not to feel reminiscent of the kinds of moral panic that people had about sexual practices in the nineteen eighties and nineties, like through the years of HIV AIDS, um, and part of that was to do with like particular groups of gay men quite visibly on social media breaking covid rules and having like lockdown raves and parties and then going to fire island um so fire island in a way kind of actually was for a lot of people it was so expected that that would be the the kind of milieu of the gay men who were breaking these rules like it was this kind of again it was synonymous with a kind of irresponsibility with a kind of apolitical attitude like a disregard for the rules a lot of quite complicated and quite ugly stuff actually and like a lot of it I think was like was factual and rooted in real critique and other stuff was kind of petty and thorny and um I guess in part that was that was part of my decision to try and move the focus away in the final chapter but still acknowledged what it was like during the pandemic um but yeah I think that Fire Island sort of imaginary quality like the sense that there's the real place and then there's the fire island that we like might hope to imagine for a kind of utopia that we imagine in the future like is a part of um like was was certainly a sort of important trope in the years of hiv aids and i think sort of interestingly functioned similarly and differently um in 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 the COVID-19 years. Sorry, I feel like there was so much in that. I don't know if I fully answered. No, no, that was really rich. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, So you talk about two hurricanes in the book. Um, It was really interesting to me, the sort of impact of these, of these natural disasters on the island. Um, uh, So in this last chapter, you're talking about Hurricane Gloria, which hit in 1985. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can kind of tell us, like, how do you use Gloria to lead us into this chapter, which is, you know, ultimately about the impact of HIV AIDS on the island um, and also your conversations your, uh, with this this lovely poet, Walter Holland, um, who's sort of talking about, like, you know, how then were people dealing with um, the impact of this virus on their communities? Like the history of Fire Island is a history like full of metaphors. I think that's something that I really felt very strongly from the name. It's you know from the fire in its name and all of the the kind of flames that inform that. Um, and I think the hurricanes, the hurricane of nineteen thirty eight, which is sort of this like quite pivotal moment that, um, in interesting ways, 
re redesigns Cherry Grove because so many of the original houses were blown away and actually kind of creates the space for it to become built up by the kind of theatre people from the city is this crucial moment. Um, and Hurricane Gloria in the 1980s, it has not been lost on like numerous writers, the connections between the hurricane and the epidemic. Um, like I'm thinking of David Groff's work and, and he writes very much about the sense that what was in the early years, like what was HIV AIDS, if not this completely kind of otherworldly force that like decimated the community and was destructive, was unexpected. Um, and so I think that that became, became a way in, like it became a way in of thinking about the islands, not just its, its community, but also its landscape and the sense that actually like Fire Island is very vulnerable to erosion and the kind of the, the continued complications caused by climate change, but also to hurricanes, like it's this very exposed landscape. And I think that to me feels symbolic of a kind of broader sense of vulnerability and fragility, that it's this space that, um, you know, in which a queer culture has flourished, but the, the terrible fear that could just as easily be taken away again. And I think that for many people, that's what the 1980s felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, like, nonetheless, I suppose the fact that Hurricane Gloria didn't wipe out the island and um, people did continue to go to Fire Island in, in the very worst years of the epidemic and 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 they would support people, say goodbye to people and, and poets like David Groff and Walter Holland were bearing witness to that moment um, and bearing witness to the damages and certainly speaking with them and and speaking with Walter as part of my research was like so pivotal to so 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 pivotal to I guess my sense of what those years must have been like and appreciating their loss as as very real and intimate and personal. I mean, I feel like as like I'm, you know, 31 was born in the early 90s, like I feel the legacy of that period have felt it in my life kind of in the process of growing up and coming out um and so it feels like there's 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 a grief that that i simultaneously kind of feel but that also feels abstract right it's kind of imagining like who are the who are the who are the like the elders and the people that we've lost and that we never met as a result of this and so to speak to the people who were writing at the time and since about you know close intimate people in their lives that they lost was like incredibly moving and and important i think for trying to imagine even a even a bit what it was like to be on fire island in those years yeah it was for me also as like a queer person it was just really powerful i thought wow what an amazing opportunity to actually be able to speak with somebody who was there um just incredible um, so I've already kept you for an hour, so I want to give you the opportunity to answer this this question before we sort of move on to what you're doing now, um, but it'll be up to you. So your book is just like, it's so rich with these incredible, um, you know, individuals and their work that you track. So I want to give you the opportunity if, if there is somebody that we haven't spoken about yet that you would like to speak about, um, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. And if not, that's totally fine. Um, and we can just wrap up with uh, talking about sort of what you're up to these days. Well, this, I mean, yeah, this is like part of a larger sort of a larger thing about the book that 
that there were just so many writers that I felt like I could have included or so many figures um, that I wanted to include. And I think that there were there were people that I discovered in the course of writing the book, like the writer George Whitmore, um, who who died from AIDS um, in the in the late 1980s. Um, but whose work I discovered like through the research for this book that I found really fascinating. I mean, he wrote a collection of short stories that was never published about life on Fire Island. And he also wrote a play that kind of satirized the sort of intergenerational dynamics. Um, and he was part of the Violet Quill group that that also contained Edmund White and Felice Bacano and, and Andrew Holleran, who I think are kind of better known writers. Um, and yeah, I think that again he was like a fascinating literary figure um and it was yeah it was it was a pleasure to discover his work and so i guess he's somebody that i would want to point out um and i guess like more generally there have been so many interesting people and artists like who've occupied this space but i'm also really excited i guess from from an outside perspective about what's going on right now and the kind of influx in the last sort of 10, 12, 13 years of writers who, writers and artists who have come to Fire Island through um, Boffo and and Fire, like the two artist residency programs in the Pines and Cherry Grove respectively, who are engaging with the landscape in, in different ways. And so I think um, there's, a, there's like a, a, yeah, a really great roster of like, of new artists who are who are writing about Fire Island and kind of critiquing it. And so I think this is a really vibrant moment in its in its cultural history. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you making time for this interview. I'm gonna pick up your book on cruising. That's gonna be my next <laughs> my next read. Um and yeah, I look forward to um whatever it is that you come out with next. Great. Yeah, sorry, I realized I forgot to to mention that. Um I'm currently working on a book about what it means to be flamboyant. Um, I mean, I guess I seem to be fixated on fire um, because one. I guess one of the things that like really compelled me um, about this word is that it's related in French to flames and and fire. And I think as a as a concept in queer culture and popular culture more broadly, it's this kind of ambivalent term. Like it's it's like sort of seemingly old fashioned these days, but to call someone a flam to call someone flamboyant is not necessarily a compliment. Um, and so I, I'm working on a nonfiction book, I guess, about how it's valued culturally, um, its centrality to like so much of queer culture and, um, and, and to sort of popular culture more generally. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very fun and illuminating to spend time with that idea. Um, it's still in the proposal stage. So now I'm having to do the hard bit, which is actually kind of make some decisions about what this book is about, but that's what I'm working on at the moment. Something to look forward to. (laughs) Well, thank you again so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been great.